0: Rising. We have a marvelous Thursday show for you all today. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. Let's get right to it. More Fox News news, I believe.
1: That's right. Sean Hannity is set to take over Tucker Carlson's old 8 p.m. spot on Fox News. The, According to the reporting from The Drudge, he'll be joined in the evening lineup by Jesse Waters and Greg Gutfield, who've also reportedly been promoted to primetime. A Fox News spokesperson denied confirmation that the changes. Uh, are happening to Mediate when asked, saying, quote, no decision has been made on a new primetime lineup, and there are multiple scenarios under consideration.
0: Hmm. Well, Drudge, Reports left, the Drudge Report left out news on current 10 p.m. host Laura Ingram, which was leading to some speculation online that perhaps she was looking at being axed. But Fox has totally refuted those notions, saying that Ingram is going to remain a full part of the lineup. However, there's still some speculation going on that she could be moved off primetime, time because the specific wording the spokesperson used was, quote, reports based on various tweets by left-wing activists are wildly inaccurate. Laura Ingram, the top-rated woman in cable news, is now and is now and will continue to be a prominent host and integral part of the Fox News lineup. So this is all coming from the Drudge Report. Now, the Drudge Report has a history of getting some really inside scoops. Mm. Famous, I'm rereading, uh, not rereading, I'm reading for the first time this new book by uh, by Ben Smith, mm-hmm. BuzzFeed, Semaphore guy, on the history of BuzzFeed and Huffington Post and Gawker, and it talks about Drudge a lot and Drudge's early successes, including Drudge being the first place you would encounter news of the Monica Lewinsky stuff. Mm-hmm. That's where, where it broke, on Drudge. So, history of getting great scoops says the primetime lineup is being... Reorganized, so Jesse Waters currently in in primetime. He's currently in the um, so his show was before T- Tucker was 8 p.m. So he's 7 p.m. Um, and then Greg Gutfeld has the uh, 11 p.m. slot, the like late night show thing. Um, and then Jesse and Greg both. Are part of the five, which is on five right. o'clock. So, so some of this is just re. It sounds like if it is happening, it's kind of just moving around people a little bit. But because and but moving Sean even to a different hour would be a big deal because he he's been at his current hour for a long time now. Um, and then l- there was nothing about Laura Ingram in what Drudge reported, so that was making some people think, well, maybe she's being. Moved out of primetime entirely. So what do you
1: think about that decision? Given that she is the top-rated woman yeah. uh, in cable news,
0: I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't know that it's true that it's, it's going to happen. I, I can't imagine them um, wanting to replace her without. I, I can't imagine them wanting to have an all-male lineup. Frankly, um, you want a little bit of, you know, a little bit of diversity <laughs> there. Um, I, I don't know, and, and I'm not sure they have another obvious female. It's not like they have this really. I mean they have a lot of very successful female conservative talents, don't get me wrong, but I don't know who they're it's not obvious to me like they're trying to elevate someone to replace her. So Well is it worth
1: speculating about why it might be that Lori Ingram, given that her ratings don't seem to be the issue, might be on the chopping block or at least the block to be displaced yeah. from her primetime slot.
0: Again, I don't know that she is on the chopping block at all, but that is what is suggested by this report. From I mean, Run. she
1: of course was implicated in some of the um, mm. uh, one uh, the texts that came out around like the one six reporting and also some of the Dominion lawsuit text. She famously uh, texted uh, White House chief, chief of staff saying, "Donald Trump needs to tell these people to go home," seemingly anticipating that he was getting himself into mm-hmm. territory that was going to be both bad for him, perhaps bad for the country, and perhaps also something that she didn't want to defend on air. Um, there were a series of texts uh, between her and Tucker Carlson behind the scenes that came out and some of the Dominion law, law reporting uh, sorry, lawsuit reporting. And it would be interesting to see whether or not she has been showing allyship to Tucker Carlson, whether that is causing friction, whether she has been pushing back perhaps around his ouster from Fox News, or if there are opportunities she's looking to, like the ones Tucker is revealing. Yeah, I, him, I, I don't think her programming
0: Twitter. really engaged and stopped the ste- stuff, like, at all. I I know that while she was very um, supportive, obviously, of Donald Trump, like everyone else in conservative media while he was president, um, I think she's perceived as very much in the it's time to move on camp, Mm -hmm. um, very much ready to crown a successor to Trump—DeSantis, obviously. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I remember some reporting that, like, you know, Trump has a list of people in conservative media who are still utterly, absolutely loyal to him, and she was no longer on it because she was ready to say good things about DeSantis. So I don't know. And also, you know, people are—so there's speculation that is absolutely not confirmed, and I don't know that it's true at all, that Tucker was ousted as part of the Dominion lawsuit Mm -hmm. because that was like a— like a covert agreement they Mm -hmm. reached, like Mm -hmm. it's not in paper anywhere, but they had a handshake agreement, Dominion and Fox, that Tucker is going to have to be fired. Um, So some people are saying, well, maybe Laura—so we don't know if that's true. Was Laura a part of that, too? why would Fox have taken a deal that required them to fire two of their main five hosts? Sure. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but also,
1: what's the rationale with respect to Lori Ingram? Well, let's also talk about yeah. the, the Sean Hannity it. Well, part and it seems it. like
0: the rationale for Tucker was really more to hurt them, to, to, to collect a—not to, not to have something super relevant to, Dominion or to the lawsuit, but to make them feel the pain because losing Tucker is a big deal.
1: Sure, although Tucker wasn't some incidental figure in the context of that lawsuit. I mean, remember, the reason why Dominion had such a strong case, despite the law not favoring defamation suits um, in this kind of media mm-hmm. context, is because they have proof There's these records—because of the texts and emails and all the behind-the-scenes conversation, that there was a different reality that the Fox News were representing on air versus off-air. So, they had very little cover in the way of saying, we just made a mistake, or we had someone on who said something that we disagreed with, but we pushed back on air, those kinds of things. When you have Fox uh, hosts, like Tucker Carlson, representing that he does not believe in Stop the Steal offline, but encouraging a certain amount of that sentiment online, that's where the grist for the lawsuit actually came from. So, he wasn't incidental to the power of—the strength of the claims that Dominion was actually bringing. I'm going to put that out there. But let's talk about the Sean Hannity piece of this, which in some ways is the bigger news and the more clear news. Sean Hannity taking over uh, Tucker Carlson's spot. What do you make of that decision? Can he capture that same populist energy? Is it going to go well for him?
0: And I'm saying they haven't moved him in forever, but that might actually not be strictly true because there was a slight reshuffling when—I'm trying to think back how this went—when Bill O'Reilly departed, Megyn Kelly got her own hour. There was a little bit of rearranging a few times that, that wasn't really getting rid of any because um, uh, uh, and, and then Martha McCallum used to be uh, at the uh, in the evening and they moved her to the morning, so he might have gone from like nine to ten or ten to nine once. So I, honestly, this might not be really a seismic change. Um, uh, who Tucker is ultimately replaced with because right there's here's an hour we have to fill with someone will still be the. the The very interesting thing even if Sean is technically filling that hour. Well, then who's filling Sean's hour, right? Sure That's the big question. Yes I I think whoever's watching Sean Hannity will watch him an hour earlier or an hour later Um, That's not really a big deal.
1: So you still think there's a need for Fox to capture to get someone who can capture the audience that Tucker managed to capture in the kind of public sentiment because yesterday we got into it a little back back and forth about who counts as a Republican if you were out of step with the kind of rising populist trend within the Republican Republican Party. Are you really still even a Republican? But Sean Hannity, uh, Hannity, who is now perhaps most. Uh, um, well, m- most watched mm-hmm. host at Fox News isn't part of that kind of populist Republican trend. He's a much more traditional conservative. And is Fox News still going to be hurting, even if they reshuffle the deck chairs in the Titanic in this way, for not having a popular host that captures the kind of Trumpian sentiment of the, the mainstream Republican Party at this point? Yeah,
0: I, I think that remains to be seen. Uh, Tucker was very unique in some of the issues he staked out and, and the effort he put put in to make non-interventionism, some economic trade stuff that was a little bit clashing with where Republicans used to be, Um, make that, you know, the center, big part of the new Republican agenda. And that was the strength of his personality, his, his conviction. Um, his his desire to actually fight with Republicans, who he thought were not living up to that, um, to not just be a cheerleader all the time for Team R. Like, mm. he had an agenda. He was not going to just applaud everyone with an R next to their name, no matter what they do. He wanted to bring them closer to his way of thinking. So. Is the next person going to do that, going to be—because and that, that takes a lot of discipline. That takes a lot of, uh, again, conviction. You have to have sure. sincere beliefs or at least sincerely enough held beliefs to uh, to know, you know, which are the Republicans that are moving my way—you know, for Tucker Carlson, that was your J.D. Vance's, your Josh Hawley's, your—those yeah. kinds of people. And—, uh, and and then and then feature them and reward them and you know go to the, you know, the more chameleon type, the Lindsey Graham's of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z? Um, Actually, Jesse Waters, I will say, has done a little bit of that, more than I maybe would have expected. I I think he's been uh, really good on actually some civil liberties issues. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, uh, Frankly, the whole lineup has been pretty good on on some of these efforts to go after TikTok, for instance. Jesse Waters hauled Lindsey Graham on and yelled at him for supporting, you know, one of these anti-TikTok bills that was going to be like Patriot Act for the Internet and all that kind of thing. So uh, I I, I hope to continue to see a lot of that.
1: Yeah, well, it's worth saying also that Jesse Waters and the civil Civil liberties advocacy seems to stop uh, at kind of personal liberties that are caught up in the in the culture wars and people's mm. individual choices to live their lives the way they want if they're trans and or, or um, have a trans member in their family and things they
0: like that. They brought me on. I was on uh, uh, Fox in the evening like two weeks ago to talk about um, not, uh, not banning social media for kids and why that would be a disaster from a civil libertarian standpoint, so, uh, you know, you got to get out the message wherever you can. Mm. All right, coming up, here's something I haven't said in a while. I will tell you what's on my radar. That's right, I wrote one. (laughs) Stay tuned. Today on Capitol Hill, Representative Jim Jordan warned whistleblowers before their testimony before the House Subcommittee on the Weaponization on the Federal Government.
2: We've talked to over two dozen whistleblowers. People have come to us. We've interviewed several of those. And today, three of them, three of those brave whistleblowers and a lawyer who represents them will tell us their story. They will tell us what happened, what they saw, and then what happened to them because they were courageous enough to report it to Congress. And I just want to tell you guys, get ready, get ready, because these guys are going to come after you. You know they are. Last hearing we had, last hearing we had, we had two journalists, Democrats, Two Democrat journalists sat right where you guys did, and these guys tried to get them to divulge their sources. Someone needs to tell them how the First Amendment works. And oh, while while Mr. Taibbi, one of those award-winning journalists sitting right where you're sitting, was testifying, guess what else was happening? The IRS was knocking on his door. So get ready. Audiences will remember that's uh, Stacey Plaskett
0: is a delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands. I believe she's the one who called Schellenberger and Taibbi so-called journalists. Um, who then, uh, because of the you know s- slight error Taibbi had made about which agency was which, even though I-, I argued it was not the massive error that Mehdi Hassan claimed it you know under that it. it it made the Twitter files more than useless. Uh, she then called on Taibbi to, like, recant or face—or, like, reminding him that perjury is, uh, is, is, can, can result in jail time. She's the one who sent that letter. So it, I think it's very rich of her to be getting all, you know, worked up about the rule of law. I'm sure you loved her, her whole—during uh, National Law Enforcement Week? How dare they?
1: Yeah, I I think that if she wants to turn the Democrats into the pro-cop, anti-abolition party that is completely their right, they might think there's political benefits to it. Um, And I think there are a lot of younger voters and a lot of black voters and 20 million people who are in the street in the protests of 2020 who might very fairly choose to never vote for a Democrat again for the rest of their life. And that's something that the Democratic Party is going to have to deal with. But it's really interesting to see the confident choice that's being made to wrap oneself in, uh, wrap yourself up in the kind of a Blue Lives Matter flag in order to make some kind of point to an ostensibly conservative audience about how much they should not want to uh, defund the FBI or investigate its overreaches. That used to be a core left principle. Understanding that 85 uh, percent of Contralpo's activities were targeting the left, that there has been a long history that continues to this day of leftists being caught up in the deep state overreach, the same way as these right-leaning figures are now. There was a member of the African People's Socialist Party who was arrested on claims of Russiagateism just last year, um, and you know. It's really disappointing to see, frankly.
0: Right. It's it's disappointing to see so little Democratic buy-in or participation in these hearings in a useful way. Obviously, they're going to—Democrats are going to reject, you know, some of the framing of the Weaponization Committee and, you know, how Donald Trump was uniquely and unfairly impacted, that kind of stuff. But there should be—you would—I would hope. From ostensible progressives, some recognition of the nefarious role law enforcement has played in the history of left-wing activism, and then I, I, I would have liked to see some concern. Yeah, you know, we've seen very occasionally we've seen concerns from Rokana. Um, Ilhan Omar has expressed some concern, but other than them, there's been there's been very little uh, buy-in from the Democrats that there's anything. Untoward about in within the Twitter files and you know within the FBI's behavior uh, more broadly. So this specifically th- th- these whistleblowers, um, th- this uh, Stephen Friend is I, I believe his name, so who is testifying there. So he was he had his security clearance revoked.
1: Yeah, and, and I think it's worth uh, just being clear about why his security. Yeah, clearance Yeah, re- go ahead revoked. if you want to explain that. Um, so in a letter that was given to him explaining why. It said, the security concerns stem from your refusal to execute a court-ordered arrest warrant um, and authorized download of sensitive FBI information. So it, lo- it seems as though there was um, mm-hmm. a 1-6 participant um, that had an arrest warrant. He refused to execute that warrant and additionally downloaded um, documents from the FBI computer system to an unauthorized removable flash drive, which was also against protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can dispute you know, whether or not this was uh, targeted, but there do seem to be, have been legitimate violations of his work conduct, uh, a failure to perform the task of arresting the. Well, sure. But who-
0: I hope that every FBI agent, every police officer, every person in law enforcement who is asked to carry out. Uh, an arrest, an order, or something. That if they believe it is unconstitutional or illegal or violates something, yeah, I, I, hope, I, abso- I hope they absolutely yeah, refuse to do it. I absolutely every single
1: time. agree. But yeah. you know, the point of civil disobedience is to accept the consequences sure. of your civil di- di- disobedience. It's not to, you know, do a lunch counter strike and then complain when you're thrown to jail. Those civil rights protesters sat in jail, right. and they—that well, they that, that, that was p- that was part of. They're the allowed ability. to complain
0: about being thrown. So in jail,
1: the but. point here is that. He could have lawfully and not in a retaliatory way been removed, uh, had his security clearance removed in a way that isn't retaliatory, it's just about his performance. Mm. But he can be completely legitimate in choosing not to arrest whoever was supposed to be arrested. Mm. FBI official whistleblower Stephen Friend, who we're talking about now, testified on what he says happened after he sounded the alarm on the FBI's treatment of those arrested at the January 6th Capitol attacks.
3: Nonetheless, the FBI cynically elected to close ranks and attack the messenger. The FBI is incentivized to work against the American people and in dire need of drastic reform, particularly in these areas. The integrated program management system incentivizes the use of inappropriate investigatory processes and tools to achieve arbitrary statistical accomplishments. Mission creep within the national security branch has refocused counterterrorism from legitimate foreign actors to political opponents within our borders. The FBI weaponizes process crimes and reinterprets laws to initiate pretextual prosecutions and persecute its political enemies. Bureau intelligence analysis capability increasingly dictates operations, turning the FBI into an intelligence agency with a law enforcement capability. FBI collusion with big tech to gather intelligence on Americans, censor political speech, and target citizens for malicious prosecution. A dysfunctional promotion process fosters a revolving door of inexperienced, ambitious FBI supervisors ascending the management ladder within the agency. FBI informant protocols that are broken and abusive. The FBI skirts the Whistleblower Protection Act and exploits the security clearance revocation process to expel employees who make legally protected disclosures.
0: Right, so his, that's his perspective that some of these arrests uh, being made with respect to January 6th uh, were improper. Uh, I, I saw elsewhere he made a statement that, you know, there was—and it's obviously true that there was a mix of lawful protesting going on and then also some very unlawful trespassing, smashing of things, feuding with police officers. And look, I think, you know, ever, everyone who who broke those laws, who 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 smashed windows, who who you know shoved police? Who didn't respond to orders to stop trespassing? I think it is absolutely appropriate to bring those people to justice with the with the appropriate justice, not solitary confinement for however long. Even the uh, the uh, um, I forget his name, the the horns guy, got yeah. uh, got, uh, got a pretty lengthy sentence. Yeah. Um, but yes, they should be prosecuted. and They should serve something because. Um, You can protest, you can't trespass, you can't smash stuff, you can't set things on fire. So I think that's all appropriate, while still, uh, you know, while not overreaching. And we talked about this, I think you were actually away, and it was Jessica and I who talked about some of these efforts to, um, to prosecute, the successful thus far efforts to prosecute like Proud Boys leadership, on, on like organizing a seditious coup mm-hmm. sort of charges, mm-hmm. which to me gets well beyond um, It is concerning could be is in fact a kind of weaponizing the whole concept mm-hmm. like look this thing was not Was not organized to my mind. This was a, a mostly spontaneous Um, Act of law breaking a crowd that got out of control and I think and and in this case In the the proud boys case they're going after people who weren't even there Trying to say that they were organizing it to the extent they were you know They were talking and they were about we got to take action You know we got to defend Trump that kind of stuff on social media to say that speech Rises to the level of you know conspiracy to organize something like this I think is very is very troubling, so I absolutely agree that in several cases, law enforcement is going well beyond and is is, is um, actually just criminalizing free expression, but there is still a legitimate interest in bringing the rule breakers to justice with Sentences that reflect what they actually did. Yeah,
1: I think that's right. You know, over incarceration, mass incarceration, and weaponizing the the law enforcement yeah. community to punish people whose politics don't agree with yours isn't just all of a sudden not a problem when the people involved are folks that you don't agree with ideologically. Right. And that should be obvious and clear as day. Now, to the extent that some might try to characterize some of the things that are said at this hearing, and more broadly, as exculpatory for the people who did violate the law and behave inappropriately, I obviously don't agree with that. But it is very concerning, the extent to which Democrats are leaning into this, cops are good, tough on crime is good, yeah. let's punish everybody to Jail everybody who was at January
0: 6th. What about, uh, it, just as you said, over-incarceration, it's a Democrats real problem. said that was
1: a real problem. Yeah. Uh,
0: but, like, and again, this isn't all Democrats, but, like, Stacy Plaskett Democrats right. are leaning into the, the kind of, you know, lock, so lock so them for, all up.
1: Yeah, so, for example, right now, there have been pro- cop city protesters. It was recently... Um, reported on, the police—the re- autopsy report recently um, exonerated the young protester who was shot to death in the Cop City uh, protesters. They claimed that he had fired on the cops. The autopsy report revealed that that is not what happened. And moreover, activists protesting Cop City have been arrested by the score for simply putting—distributing mailers in people's mailboxes. So. I can't imagine anything more First Amendmenty than handing out a flyer with your political opinion on it, and people are currently in jail with draconianly high um, uh, bail amounts for for simply engaging in that kind of speech activity. So to have that happening in one part of the world, which I would also argue Demo- many elected Democrats are being very silent about, but having that happen in one part of the country and ostensibly opposing it, and then not having a principled, consistently consistent, principally consistent stance when it's happening in the Capitol undermines the credibility of um, reform work all across the country. It's a very bad move, and it's a very short-term political gamble that Democrats are making that might have long-term negative effects for the party.
0: Well said. More Rising right after this.
1: All right, Robbie. what's on your radar today?
0: Well, Brianna, Twitter CEO Elon Musk is facing a barrage of media criticism for acquiescing to demands from the Turkish government to censor content on the site. Now, the acts of censorship took place last week, just days before the country's presidential election. Unsurprisingly, the restricted accounts had expressed criticism of autocratic Turkish leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Now, given that Musk has promised to make Twitter a platform for free speech, indeed his stated rationale for buying the site in the first place was to make it more protective of political expression, his kowtowing to Erdogan has struck many commentators as hypocritical. Quote, Elon Musk doesn't care about free speech, declared the New Republic. NBA star Enes Kanter Freedom, a Turkish dissident who has frequently criticized the Erdogan regime, said, I don't want to hear about Elon Musk talking about free speech ever again. My colleague at Reason Magazine, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, also chided Musk for, quote, making a dictator's job easier. And Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales tweeted that treating freedom of speech as a principle rather than a slogan would have meant fighting back harder. Now, it's absolutely true that there's a certain incoherence to Musk's approach. Fair enough. He croons about free speech while also pledging to follow applicable local laws. He has said he is willing to lose money on Twitter if it means protecting free speech. But he has also said that Twitter will not try to impose its values, free speech one assumes, on the rest of the world. Most countries, unfortunately, do not have free speech protections that are as robust as the U.S.'s First Amendment. Even in the U.S., social media companies have faced tremendous pressure from federal government agencies to censor speech. Musk is well aware of this, having greenlit the Twitter files in the first place. Perhaps he should have anticipated that his various pledges, allow free speech, obey the law, be willing to lose money, don't impose values, would swiftly come into conflict. But some of this criticism seems to suggest that Musk's decision to heed Turkey is some new low for social media platforms. Ryan Mack, a tech reporter for The New York Times, frets that Musk has provided, quote, a blueprint for repressive governments everywhere. Quote, if Twitter doesn't censor the content you want, simply threaten to cut off the service, says Mack, summarizing the aforementioned blueprint. Its owner just put it in writing. Uh, okay, but this blueprint already exists. Musk is not remotely the first social media CEO to begrudgingly accede to an authoritarian government's demands. In 2007, a Turkish court ordered the country's internet service provider to take down YouTube over videos that mocked Turkey's founder, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. YouTube complied within hours, removing the videos in order to restore YouTube access to the citizens of Turkey. In subsequent years, Turkey's government used similar threats to force Facebook, Facebook, Periscope, and yes, Twitter, to comply with demands for censorship. That was pre-Elon Musk. It's true that Wikipedia fought back against Turkey's demands for censorship, resulting in the site not being available in Turkey at all from 2017 to 2019. And it's not just Turkey, of course. Social media companies have had to deal with demands for content takedowns all over the globe. During the 2000s, the version of Google that was available in China included all sorts of compromises with the Chinese Communist Party's tyranny. Eventually, Google stopped complying, so it got the boot. In 2018, Google had plans to relaunch its censored censored search engine in China, but when those details leaked, the company faced so much criticism in the U.S. that it actually had to abandon course. The point is, these are not always easy calls. When a repressive government orders a private company to restrict speech, it is the government, not the company, that has decided to violate the human rights of its citizens. The companies should resist wherever they can, but resisting to the point at which the government shuts down their service is not a moral requirement, nor is it a course of action that, to my mind, obviously maximizes freedom. It's perfectly legitimate to think that a CCP-approved version of Google, while far from ideal, is better for the people of China than no Google at all. In either case, the villain is the CCP, not Google. Which brings me back to Musk and Turkey. Twitter claims that it has fought Erdogan's takedown request to the maximally practical extent. Quote, We were in negotiations with the Turkish government throughout last week who made clear to us Twitter was the only social media service not complying in full with existing court orders. This is according to a spokesperson for Twitter. The quote continues: "We received what we believe to be a final threat to throttle the service after several such warnings and so in order to keep Twitter available over the election weekend, took action on four accounts and 409 tweets identified by court order. The spokesperson noted that the company will continue to fight the demands in court and subsequently released the written order for all the world to see. Refusing to comply at that point would have meant a total Twitter outage in Turkey on the eve of its election. This is a development that should make everyone very angry with the Turkish government. But Musk is not the correct object of scorn, though obviously fair to note he has not yet delivered on his promise of a free speech platform. The situation illustrates the dangers of letting autocrats control market access, Will Duffield of the Cato Institute told me yesterday. The best solution is to treat such demands as non-tariff barriers to trade. Our friends and allies should not demand that American firms neuter their products in accordance with local whims. Indeed, so obviously we talked about this, Brianna, uh, yesterday with Michael Schellenberger, who s- uh, made a similar point, and I, I looked into it a little further. And I, I, you know, I just wanted to give audience, uh, our audience, a, a a look at the volume of takedown requests that not just Elon, not just Twitter, face from repressive governments. And I think these requests are are bad. They're absolutely authoritarian. They violate. Your, your human right to free speech—that's a right that I think all people should have—but it is a right that is only enshrined into law this to this degree in the U.S. So when a repressive government tells a company to do that, the, the, I think it's great if the company resists as much as it possibly can. But but having the service shut off to me, I don't think that's—I don't think they should be morally obligated to do that, and I don't think that necessarily improves the climate for non-authoritarianism in the country.
1: Well, you know, Schellenberger raised that point yesterday, and I told him yesterday that I think that there's a there's an argument for it benefiting the people of Turkey or China or wherever else for social media companies to take the knee and provide some version of the product, even if it's a censored version of the product, rather than no product at all. But what I said to Schellenberger is that there is an argument for that. It's not at all clear to me. There is definitely a case to be made that if social media companies did go black in those, com- in those countries, it would help to expose the... Um, um, doctrinaire ver- uh, um, reality of the governments that are in place there, the authoritarian reality of the governments that are in place there, and that countries being able to say, we still have Google, we still have Twitter, we still have the social media accounts that most of the rest of the world are using, disguises that in some in some way. So it's not clear to me. I think there's a good argument on both sides of it is Isn't it a
0: little bit like... Um, like um you know, blocking, blocking trade with a country and saying, well, the, the price of everything is going to go up for them, and they'll realize their country's policies are bad or something, which never seems to work?
1: Well, I think that's very different, because I think that blocking food and basic services from a country that can cause people to starve and die mm-hmm. is a much higher ethical bar than not providing Twitter, something that only, what, 3% of Americans are even I mean, not on. Not providing Google? Well, we're talking about Twitter. Okay. So that that's one part of it. But the main part of it is that, as I said yesterday, people who are arguing that Elon Musk is operating Twitter at a lower standard than other companies are wrong, flat out. But that's not why he's being accused of hypocrisy. He's being accused of hypocrisy but he, because he has and continues to hold himself out as the owner of a site that is not equal to the other websites, under the same constraints as the other websites, and rising above those constraints, unlike those other websites. Um, he is, in fact, doing the exact same thing as everybody else, while holding himself ahead above everybody else. And so, if, if he is continuing to say that he bought Twitter— because he didn't care about money, because he values free speech as a principle. If people like Tucker Carlson come to Twitter and say, I'm going to host my show on Twitter because, quote, there aren't many platforms left that allow free speech, the last big one remaining in the world, the only one is Twitter, where we are now, having a global framing of Twitter as a global paragon of free speech rights at the same time when it is clearly bending the knee to authoritarian regimes around the world. That is the problem. So I think I think it's perfectly reasonable for Elon Musk to say, look, my bad. I had no real sense of—I hadn't predicted into the future how coercive other governments were going to be about Twitter, how difficult it was going to be for me to hold the line on this as we entered other countries. And I was wrong about some of the representations I made about what Twitter could be, the same way that he has not followed those free speech principles in the United States of America either as Michael Schellenberger noted yesterday, taking um, uh, Elon, uh, sorry Kanye West off of the website for posting the swastika in the story of David, which was well, not in violation. We, we've criticized him for that well, numerous me, times. Well, let me, I think I, it's fair for me to say it. The reality is, if you're going to do a radar about how Elon Musk is being unfairly treated, I, I agree with you. The people who claim that he is doing worse than other websites, I don't think that's true. But Elon set a standard for himself That he was going to be better than other websites. At the same time, we're talking about Turkey. He has not fulfilled his free speech obligations in the United States of America in censoring Kanye West for posting symbols that I don't believe he should have posted but which are not in violation of Twitter's protocol, censoring journalists because they were covering a story that he didn't like with the Elon Jets account. Like, we cannot memory hole that stuff. Not way. memory I'm not memory holding it. And I have said that he's falling
0: short. I said it today. And I've said it numerous times that he's falling short of his commitments. And also, as I said in the radar, some of the things he said are, are contradictory. He said he wants it to be a platform for free speech, but also we're going to follow local laws right. and we're not going to try to impose Twitter's values right. on others. Well, but, but so I think, how does that I all mean, work? So that's so the, I, that's I, the, I the criticism. And
1: I think that's fair criticism. I think Elon Musk has been hypocritical. I think that people can grow and change and have realizations and that's fine and people shouldn't hold them accountable forever for making mistakes. So if Elon Musk wants to say, I oversold, mm-hmm. I he, he's blamed people for the behaviors that they've taken with Twitter in the past But he's now doing the exact same things and said that they were horrible free speech suppressors and da-da-da. Well, I, I would be very happy to hear him say, you know what, sometimes these decisions are being made for financial reasons, sometimes these decisions are being made because we're being strong-armed and we're having to make these right. ethical decisions about what the best course of action for people in other countries actually is, and I was wrong. Mea culpa, we can all move forward.
0: But what do we, what, what to make of, you know, mainstream New York Times tech reporter so blinded by anti-Musk bias that he doesn't know that... The Twitter pre Musk and all these other companies have bowed down in the face of you know, risking a, rather than have the service shut down multiple times, acting like this is the first time this has ever happened.
1: Well, if, like I said, people who are acting like that's the first time that has there were ever happened, I mean I those people to some them, yeah. correct those people are wrong. The people who are saying Elon Musk said he was going to be better than those people and he in fact is not. Those people continue to be right.
0: Yeah, I mean he said. Contradictory things. So, because he said free speech, but we'll also follow, obviously, local laws. And I um, mean,
1: here's the thing about Elon Musk. He's just a guy. You know, guys can make mistakes. But apparently, when it comes to Elon Musk, there's this real resistance to the idea that okay, he had a mulligan. Like he made a mistake. It's not the end of the world. What do you mean? He can resistance? still have done. There, there are people who any criticism of Elon Musk. If if you said he didn't like a shirt he was wearing one day, are are framed as haters and people who are against him. Look, I. There are also had a lot of people who are like, oh,
0: I stubbed my toe. Elon Musk strikes yeah, again. Absolutely,
1: and I, I don't know. I'll say it again. Well, just, I'll say it three okay, more okay, times. We, we've said it. The people who did that are okay, wrong. The, okay, people that are wrong. Okay. the people who did that are wrong. The people who did that are wrong. But at the end of the day, like this, Elon Musk built his whole personality, his whole, his the whole rationale that he presented him for himself to the world for why he was buying Twitter was this kind of free speech absolutism. I didn't tell him to do that. Nobody forced him to do that. He could have just said, hey, I want to make some policy changes at Twitter. I'm going to buy Twitter. He's a businessman. He had the money. That's his right. And we wouldn't be having a lot of these conversations. And I do think, you know, you just you're, you're going to have people who are perhaps irrational and a little inflamed about Elon Musk when the man has claimed the mantle of being the champion of free speech in the United States of America, when he literally has never answered to why he censored journalists. on Not because he was pressured by the FBI, not because anybody made him, not, not any of that. He personally made the personal decision to censor journalists over the Elon Musk account. He shut down the Twitter files, which I very much agree was a deeply important journalistic I, enterprise I, because of a personal spat with Matt Taibbi and then shut down Matt Taibbi's ability to post links and all these other kinds of things, that's, that's the exact opposite of what he's representing himself to be. And that's why I think so many people are triggered about his hypocrisy, because it's just so acute.
0: Hmm. All right. Another debate on Elon's subject. Uh, we'll have more rising right after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to launch his 2024 presidential bid next week. That's according to people familiar with the planning. CBS reports a kickoff event is expected to be held closer to June 1st. The Florida governor and former president Donald Trump have been going back and forth in recent days. It started when a super PAC supporting Ron DeSantis slammed the former president's appearance on the CNN town hall last week, saying, quote, On the same day Ron DeSantis was assailing Joe Biden's border crisis, Donald Trump was on CNN attacking DeSantis and lying about finishing the border wall. Trump then hit back at DeSantis over Florida's new six-week abortion ban, telling the messenger that, quote, he signed six weeks, many people within the pro-life movement feel that was too harsh. Trump then went on to say this about the heartbeat law during an interview on Newsmax.
3: Do you think that six weeks is, is going too far? Is that going to doom Republicans with the moderates in this country when it comes to 2024? Well, Rob, first
4: of all, I'm the one that got rid of Roe v. Wade. And everybody said that was an impossible thing to do. I put on three Supreme Court justices. Very few people have been, had that privilege or honor. And uh, they are terrific people. And they happen to believe uh, that Roe v. Wade should not be there. It's been now brought back to the States. And what I've done is I've given the pro-life people who are Wonderful people and loving people I've given them the power of negotiation because now they're able to negotiate something that's going to be very important.
0: So he didn't really answer the question mm-hmm. there, uh, which is interesting because he has hinted on other occasions and's been reporting that he, you know, privately he's discussed that he does think six weeks what DeSantis did in Florida is not um, is not palatable to many states in America now Ronda, it, it might be fine for Florida. Ronda DeSantis did it for Florida. Um, it's people like Lindsey Graham, actually, who introduced the insane idea of having a like a abortion. federal policy on abortion. I think most people in the Rublin coalition, even most people who do want stricter, much stricter rebor- abortion policies, know that federal action would be. Just like would be would kill Republicans at the the right. box. So.
1: so we already saw what this issue being on the table did to Republicans' midterm chances. It tanked them. They had a very disappointing did not help. Status, did not uh, help. Um, Caitlin Collins asked him this question at the CNN town hall, and he gave a similar answer as to this non-answer he gave here. This is one of the places where I think Caitlin Collins would have done well to press him harder instead of letting him off the hook, because there is a recognition that you can hear from Donald Trump in all of his statements on this topic, that he understands that extreme opinions on abortion are not aligned with the American public. Um, Six in 10 voters support legal abortion in most cases. Only 10 percent of Americans think abortion should be illegal in all cases. And part of why the six-week ban is so draconian is because it's barely longer than a woman's (laughs) menstrual cycle, and so many women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. And especially given how abortion access has been restricted in so many states, even if find out at your fifth week, that your period has been late a week or whatever it is, a lot of folks are going to have a really hard time finding abortion services within that little remaining window. So it constructively is going to ban abortion for many people. That is not popular. Trump knows it's not popular. He has said it's not popular. He has made all of these hints and statements over the time, like, oh, Republicans are getting over their skis on this one. But he's managed to find this rhetorical space where he can still claim credit for, Right. Rowan Casey being overturned, saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not advocating for a federal abortion ban. All I did was make it so that the Republicans have lever- leverage, pro-life Well, he have made leverage. it so
0: that Republicans in states where conservatives are more of a majority, where there's more pro-life sentiment, can choose for that state to have a more restrictive abortion they policy. They can
1: choose for it to be an abortion ban. Because remember, right. you can have restrictions on abortion under Roe and Casey. The, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't free-for-all, states can't legislate around abortion, because Casey was the law of the land. States had all kinds of abortion restrictions, but it basically protected it up through the first trimester, I believe it was the, the standard. So now here we are. And I do think it's telling that this was one of the few areas that Trump was a little bit on unstable footing and was very clearly dodging the question during the course of the debate. And it, I wonder if this gamble, saying, Give me credit for overturning Roe, but also don't—don't don't ding me for being part of a—basically enabling something like a federal abortion ban from potentially being promulgated is an issue. I, I said at the time—I tweeted, I believe, at the time Caitlin Collins needs to ask him if he would sign a federal abortion ban into law. Would he veto a federal abortion ban if it came across his desk? That's the kind of question he needs to be pinned on answering directly.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, in the latest jab in the back-and-forth, the Santas hit back at Trump, saying, quote, protecting an unborn child when there's a detectable heartbeat is something that almost 99 percent of pro-lifers support. As a Florida resident, you know Trump didn't give an answer about, would you have signed the heartbeat bill that Florida did that had all the exceptions that people talk about. This comes as new, an, uh, new analysis from The Washington Post points out that Republicans have not fared well at the ballot box, as we mentioned, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, including in Tuesday night's special election.
0: Although I always have to caveat that with g- getting rid of Roe and allowing states to set more limits on abortion, if they want to, is a—was a, a major—was one of the most pivotal, important conservative policy outcomes they've been trying to get. So. Even if they have suffered for it at the ballot box, that doesn't, from the conservative perspective, it very it's not like, oh, we shouldn't have done that or something. Like, the, the, the point of winning at the ballot box, right, is to eventually then implement policies you want. Right. So, sometimes politicos get, like, really in their head and are like, oh, how can we, we can't win if we do that policy. Well, like, the point of winning is to do the policy. The point, it, the point is not to win, like, just for fun, like it's a board game or something, like, aha, I, you know.
1: Well, sh- well, sure. you
0: at monopoly. Well, sure.
1: I mean, I, I do think that there is a—
0: The point is to win so that you can then construct a more enduring political coalition to get through the policies that you're—
1: Right. And, and when you talk about the policies, that's that's the issue. We have a problem in this country where we talk about politics and rights and freedoms without really delineating between, like, positive freedoms and negative freedoms. and. What is a kind of an authoritarian restriction on your rights versus laws that are protecting your ability to do what you want without fear of restrictions from the federal government? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Roe decriminalized—there were a lot of states that had criminalized abortion. Roe decriminalizes abortion, says it's your right to do what you want to do. States can legislate around it. It can make—you have to jump through certain hoops, but not hoops that are too, um, you know— Right. high, or whatever, too, too high a barrier, um, and it protects some basic fundamental rights. The same way that the, the, the whole suite of constitutional protections are basically preventing you from having draconian rules put on you. You have the right, fundamentally, to bear arms. Right. You can legislate around it, but you have the fundamental right. You have fundamental speech rights. You can legislate around it, time, place, manner, restrictions, those kinds of things, but there's a fundamental right. And so I think that Trump is being a little slippery here. Roe said, you have a fundamental right. So, him saying, we're going to take away that fundamental right, what is the purpose of doing that, except for allowing states to go back to that draconian all-or-nothing that we lived in before? If we really were invested in the idea that states should have more leeway, one, they could have been litigating a change to Casey and Roe that was not overturning it completely. Remember, the underlying Dobbs case, I think, involved a 14-week Abortion ban not a complete overturning right. of, of Roe and there was that's a choice what they wanted They made, were going to the
0: court to get a 14 right week And, and the again, court gave them as, more than they asked for. You can't no one can say that's I mean That's what France has right sure. that's not it's, but the, but it's our, where the most most of the American people you can or you can find a plurality of the American right. People so the, say. That that's okay. There's a question as why
1: Trump's Supreme Court stepped away from what the plurality of American people want or what even the litigants in that case were asking for and said actually It's the wild, wild west again, and you can do an abortion ban.
0: Well, I mean, the Supreme Court decided that they don't think—I mean, the majority of the Supreme Court decided they just—they don't think the Constitution includes that that right. So
1: that's—but when Trump is owning that, he is—he has to own creating the reality that a federal abortion ban can now be in place. He can sit here and say, well, most people wanted a 15-week in America. I'm with America on these kind of things, but he and his court— did not—they over—they way overstretched their skis. They way over—they way over—they um, way exceeded what the litigants in Dobbs actually asked for and basically were gunning for the policies that now some Republicans are supporting, which is a federal abortion ban. So, I don't think that Trump can claim credit for appointing those justices without having to also own the responsibility of appointing justices that would— Rule in such a way that's both out of step with American, out of step with what the litigants in the case before them were actually demanding. Well,
0: right, but you can—I mean, you can be somewhat. You can be a, you know, a constitutional scholar who, who, independent of your own views about what the abortion policy should be, you should—you could think abortion should be legal, but nevertheless, the Constitution doesn't actually. Protect that right in the yeah. In the you can document, make up whatever you which, want. The well,
1: law is fake, no and they would people argue that, that
0: people are made up. The privacy protection, yeah. Everything, everything's, for abortion everything's in the made the up. it's all made
1: Everything is made up. Well, the law is made up. We live in a society, and we decide what kind of society we want to live in. There's no manna, you know. There's no rock falling from heaven that has all the rules inscribed on it. We live in a society, and we make decisions about what kind of society we want to live in. And Donald Trump, he tested, he vetted his judges, and put judges on the bench that made this a possibility. So if he wants to own credit for overturning Roe and overturning Casey, he also has to own credit for putting judges on the bench that would rule in such a way that it's so widely out of step with, I would say, the law and precedent, first of all, but also out of step with the, what the majority of American people want, and there might be electoral consequences for that.
0: We will see. More rising right after this. Biden has indicated that increasing work requirements for SNAP benefits is on the table for debt ceiling talks. He said, quote, I'm not going to accept any work requirements that, going to, that are going to impact on medical health needs of people, but added that it's possible a deal could expand work rules for non-Medicaid programs, according to Politico. Now, Representative and Progressive Caucus leader Pramila Jayapal responded, telling Politico, quote, It was confusing because he said that he wasn't open to much more than what we had, which seemed to leave a little door open. But look, I have been clear, that is a non-starter with us.
1: Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted yesterday, Here's the deal. McCarthy has nowhere near the votes for a deal and therefore cannot negotiate the debt ceiling. You need 218 votes. GOP has maybe 150. They will need anywhere from 50 to 100 House Dems to pass anything. Dems have 213 votes for a clean bill, just need to pick up five. So, AOC is pointing to the fact that there are very close margins in the House, Mm -hmm. obviously. She's saying that they have 213 votes for a bill to raise the debt ceiling without there being any conditions on it. And given the financial implications, globally, economically, if we were to default on our debt. What she's basically saying is that it seems to be more likely the Democrats would be able to pick up five Republicans to come over and vote for a clean bill than the Republican caucus, which is pretty divided on these issues. There have been some hardliners that are pushing for some pretty significant um, cuts to the deficit, cuts to the social safety net programs, and they're at at different kind of levels of intensity on that issue. The likelihood that there's going to be a 218 consensus on that side seems to be relatively slim. We have
0: uh, some clips of Joe Biden talking about this. Let's watch that
4: and uh, with all four leaders in the Congress. It was civil and respectful, and everyone came to the meeting, I think, in good faith. I'm confident that we'll get the agreement on the budget that America will not default. And uh, every leader in the room understands the consequences if we fail to pay our bills. And it would be catastrophic for the the American economy and the American people if we didn't pay our bills. And I'm confident everyone in the room agreed the Speaker, from from the Speaker to the Majority Leader, to the uh, Majority Leader in the House and the Senate uh, — excuse me, the Majority in the Senate, the Minority Leader in the Senate, as well as the leader — the Democratic Leader in the House — we're going to come together because there's no alternative. We to do the right thing for the country. We have to move on. And uh, to be clear, this negotiation is about the outlines of what the budget will look like, not about whether or not we're going to, in fact, pay our debts. Leaders have all agreed we will not default.
0: So what's interesting about this is that, you know, for all the conservatives, Republicans, you know, claiming to care about reducing the deficit, balancing our budget, not spending more than we have, it's actually the Democratic proposal uh, does significant deficit reduction by massive inc- tax increases, and then also so taking in more revenue, and then some select cuts, uh, including to defense spending. Republicans, on the other hand, don't want to raise taxes, which I support but then are not, are not willing to make any cuts. Biden kind of forced them at the State of the Union to agree no cuts to the fastest growing programs, Social Security, Medicare, etc. They've said we're not going to touch that. They know that's politically unpopular. But then they also haven't really agreed to do defense spending cuts, so basically, they're not, and then and then what their sticking point has been, has been this work requirement, which you can think that's a good policy, you can think people who, who are, are getting uh, welfare should have to, you, you can think that requirement is proper, but it's not a, it, it doesn't, it's not a financial, in fact, I, I've seen arguments that those proposals Depending on how they're structured, can actually cost more money because the cost can of verifying yeah. that people are actually doing the work requirements. You're, now you you need more people to do the verifying, so you have to hire you know employ. Uh, yep. Say you have to have checks, audits of that kind of stuff. That can actually cost money. So, the Republican plan is not really a deficit reduction plan not at, at all. all.
1: <laughs> and so we we hear Republicans making this um, statement repeatedly, Marjorie Taylor Greene did it in a recent interview saying that we don't have—they characterize the American budget as a household budget, which in strict economic terms is wrong. But even accepting that, they say it's a household budget and uh, uh, we don't have a revenue problem, we have a spending problem. Well, I think most people understand, having run a household, that you can't ignore the whole revenue column if you're trying to balance your budget, especially when we have uh, in 2019, it was the first year that American billionaires paid a lower effective tax rate than working-class people. We have repeatedly cut taxes for the rich, Donald Trump with his $1.7 trillion tax cut for the rich, which uh, added dramatically to the deficit. Joe Biden has ple- pledged uh, not to raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year and has not violated that pledge. The tax proposals—raising um, that ra- raising taxes on billionaires is what's been proposed here, something that Again, a lot of these populist Republicans have been resisting. Well, a massive
0: increase to the corporate tax rate. Right. That's been corporations. Yes. Correct,
1: correct. So while they are defending corporations and the very, very wealthy from having their tax rate rates raised, they are supporting things like having additional work requirements or work requirements implemented for things like Medicaid. So Medicaid, which is a health care program for poor people who can't afford health care, the idea that because you're sick and also need to be working Courts have said that this should not stand because it undermines the whole purpose of the program. Um, The idea of um, adding additional work requirements to SNAP is something that even Biden now has said is on the table. Um, uh, The the SNAP food program, obviously. To qualify for SNAP for a family of three, uh, to qualify for SNAP, you have to be at or below 130% of the poverty line. The poverty line is a family of three living on $1,920 a month, so 130 percent of that is a three-person family living on $2,495 a month. These are the people that are yeah. being targeted by these deficit hawks. And again, no talks about taxing, uh, raising taxes on the wealthiest who have enormously grown their wealth over the course of the pandemic years.
0: People need to think through what work requirements actually are. So that means you have to have someone verifying that what well, the, the people getting SNAP benefits are submitting resumes to job applicate, Like, I, I understand why conceptually you want, like, people should not just not rely on welfare forever if they're able-bodied and they should pursue employment. And there are already work requirements
1: but for a lot of these programs.
0: The, the cost of verifying it is really probably more harmful than yeah. even if, if, like, morally it should be the case that people on welfare should be you know, seeking—should should, should not be a permanent scenario—should be seeking employment. So I, I don't—and again, that does nothing for deficit reduction. Yeah. If you're going to be serious about deficit reduction, you have to either raise more revenue in the form of taxes—which I don't think we should do, because we disagree on this. I don't want to uh, make corporations pay more. I don't think that will create a hec- healthier economic climate if we drive corporations overseas to avoid the tax rate here. Um, what I favor instead is you do have to do massive cuts. And you can't say, we're not gonna do cuts to entitlements because they're unpopular, and we're also not gonna do cuts to defense because we're afraid of spending, you know, However much money we spent on defense three years ago, it was just, we, it's, it's beyond the pale. We can't possibly have, you know, 2019's defense budget. We'll be, we'll be defenseless. We'll be overrun. We'll be attacked by Russia, China, et cetera. Does, it's not compelling or convincing at all to me.
1: Yeah, last year, Congress passed the largest defense budget ever, $800 billion. They passed a budget that was, I believe, $37 billion more than what Biden even asked for. So, again, we're talking about a world where they can just casually throw $37 billion on the pile for war where we can continue to cut taxes for the wealthiest people in this country so that they are paying a lower effective tax rate than working class people but the money that they were trying to claw back is from people who are already in the bottom tier of american America, the american economy people who are already making at, at, near the poverty rate to even be eligible for these programs to begin with talking about Uh, increasing work requirements that are already there. So uh, one of the suggestions was to raise, I think, the the SNAP uh, work requirement eligibility from 50 to 55 or 56. So basically, if you're over a certain age, the work requirement lapses and they want to raise that age. Mm -hmm. So increasingly elderly people being asked to work and able to get a program that enables them to feed themselves, which maybe should be on the table in a world where you've looked at some other problems going on, like an out-of-control military budget, like out-of-control corporate greed, like low effective tax rates for the wealthiest people in America, at certain point somebody's going to have to put together why it is that the millionaires and billionaires that populate Congress seem to have an enormous appetite for cutting programs and squeezing the poor, and never any appetite for programs that would happen to affect their personal wealth.
0: Yes, and no one should ever believe politicians who say, I mean, Republicans run on this all the time. We're going to control spending where, you know, it's, it's a, it was a drunken binge kind of thing and the tab has come due and we're going to pay it and we're going to rein it in. And then, okay, but we're not touching that. We're not touching that. We're not touching that. We're not touching that. There's not enough. I, I wish there was enough foreign aid that we could just stop giving and then that would cover our deficit. But it, it's actually, it's such a small portion and it, it should not be done. I am totally against the foreign aid, but we, a lot of people naively think that would solve our problems. It's not enough money. It's not sure. enough money. We spend a lot of money. you got to make serious cuts or the Democrats argue for raising taxes. So yeah. those are the options. And
1: one, one other thing that's worth noting also is that there are— firms that contract with the government to administer these programs, that lobby aggressively for things like work requirements. A lot of these these, uh, these industries—this industry didn't even exist before the welfare reform the Democrats implemented in the 1990s. It's created an entire an industry of people who take government money to basically say they're putting people in job placement programs, which, in fact, they have a very low success rates compared to people just trying to find their own jobs, and they get paid for doing that, regardless of whether or not—if a a person on the program gets a job, they're being paid for that, regardless if they actually were the person that connected them with the real job. Mm. So, there's a whole corrupt scheme going on, and these people are very much invested in lobbying for more work requirements always. They're thrilled about the prospect that Joe Biden, who's holding himself out as the labor president, the president for working people, is actually entertaining increasing and implementing new um, programs, uh, work requirement programs for the poor at the same time that he's letting corporate elites um, run ramshot over our country. So something to keep an eye on as well. We'll have a rising for you right after this.
0: Noam Chomsky and the president of Bard College reportedly had a previously undisclosed financial relationship with sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Now, Epstein transferred $270,000 between accounts for Noam Chomsky and then paid $150,000 to Bard College's Leon Botstein. That's according to great reporting from The Wall Street Journal. The Journal also reports that Chomsky and Botstein both said they met Epstein multiple times after he was already a registered sex offender, to discuss political and academic matters.
1: Chomsky confirmed that he received the transfer from an account linked to Epstein in March of 2018. The academic said he asked Epstein for help with a technical matter, related to his first marriage. He said in an email that he CC'd his current wife on on uh, the correspondence saying my late wife died 15 years ago after a long illness. We paid no attention to financial issues. We asked Epstein for advice. The simplest way seemed to be to transfer funds from one account in my name to another by way of his office. It was a simple quick transfer of funds, the journal reports. Botstein said he received checks from an account linked to Epstein in 2016, which totaled about $150,000. The Bard president added that he donated the money to Bard College that year, part of an over one million dollar donation.
0: So to summarize um, he Epstein came up with a creative way to give the Bard College president some money. In the Chomsky case, it sounds like he didn't actually give Chomsky any money, but he was an intermediary for Chomsky moving money from accounts. And then they did meet to discuss philosophy and politics. Um, Chomsky is asked about this. In in the journal, he says, my first response is that it's none of your business or anyone's. My second is that I knew him and we met occasionally. Why is everybody just, are we the only two people on earth who like never (laughs) had lunch with Jeffrey Epstein? It's increasingly sounding
1: (laughs) that way. Yeah, I I am really struggling with how anybody can rationalize this relationship with Epstein or any of the other relationships with Epstein, whether it's Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk. I mean, it's, it's, it seems very clear that there's a big club of affluent people who have a relationship with this man. Prince and Andrew, Donald Trump. 100%. 100%. Look, if it is the case that you need to move money around, first of all, I'm, I'm struggling with this scenario where you need to move money around using a relative stranger's, someone who's like not very close to you's bank account. There's no one else in your life who can help you with this transfer. What is it about right. Epstein's financials that make this? What is it?
0: Yes, it, it speaks to an intimacy of, yes. of social connectedness that you go to that guy? If you're really not even asking for funds, like, I guess the Bard College guy makes more, more say, you know this really wealthy person. I mean, it's it's concerning to ask this person, again, who has already <laughs> been convicted of sex crimes
1: with young women. Also, is he laundering clear. the money? Is, is, does Bard know that they're receiving a $1 million donation from Jeffrey Epstein? Or is the choice to give it to funnel it through the barred president very account. much sounds like
0: he's admitting it was structured in a way to disguise to, it exactly that's what it sounds like he's saying
1: exactly and that feel it feels like there's something going on with the chomsky case as well it's part of a divorce proceeding is he this is. Well, really... it, it,
0: she died. I think she she passed okay. away. Her All right. First wife. Yes. But
1: what what is this? What is what is the point of shuffling money in this way? Is he? Tra- is it for tax purposes? It it feels evasive. And the question is, yeah. what are you evading? I mean, I get,
0: uh, finances can be complicated. Um, I don't. If, if my wife suddenly died, I would be I would be super confused about where our money is and what account, all that kind of stuff. I, because I'm because I'm just call clueless. up Jeffrey Epstein? I would no. what I would not do is call up Jeffrey Epstein. I would call up my banker and like my mom, my dad. Yeah, I was thinking the only brother. person I've ever,
1: I think, tra- done an account account transferred yeah. to of any volume of money is like my mom. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean, I don't I just I don't understand. Um I would not
0: I would not call up that shady, wealthy guy who operates a private sex island who has been convicted of sex crimes and has weird money to throw. I, I also wouldn't just like casually hit that guy up to discuss politics and philosophy as it sounds like as Chomsky fully admits to doing. he's a he's a I know he's a very transparent person. and I know he's like a beloved, um, not really for my own philosophy. He's a beloved figure in for, to to leftists, right? he's a he's a really celebrated um, Anti, uh, Capitalist. anti-capitalist and anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist, that kind of thing. Um, I, I He's got some good takes. I appreciate that uh, he's got some good te- takes from the Brianna perspective. but
1: uh, Yeah, well, I mean, I, I am known as, I'm kind of persona non grata in pro-Chomsky circles because I had him on my show very early in Bad Faith, and we had a very heated debate in really? which I was advocating that people not vote for Joe Biden. Uh, or at least asking him, under what conditions should the vote blue no matter who uh, vice grip that Democrats are under be broken. And he was very insistent that Donald Trump was such an enormous threat to democracy, uh, to the longevity of the American state, that despite his concerns about—and you that the environment was such a significant concern and Trump was going to be so bad for um, the future of green politics, that we absolutely had to vote for Joe Biden. And I do think the last two years of Joe Biden disappointing uh, the left and undermining his own promises in those very areas strengthened my argument. But the point is that we had a somewhat tense exchange the last time around. And so there are a lot of very—the very there's a very pro chomsky mm-hmm. left is very anti Brianna as well. But all of that aside, I think, th- I think the question is, why do so many of these powerful men for so many years feel entitled to— Engage so substantively with someone who has, at that time, had so many serious charges of sex abuse, pedophilia, and the like against him with impunity? Why is it that Bill Gates' Was flying around and, and meeting up and having this relationship with them that they didn't even really feel the need to disclose in any particular way. Mm-hmm. Why was the media so silent about this relationship? All of these relationships, pr- Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, all of these relationships were so long. Why is Jelaine Maxwell basically pictured with every person with over billion and she's in like the a billion dollars? Like Where's of Waldo America, in uh, just I, old photographs? Right, it's it's like Chelsea, there she is, Chelsea Clinton's wedding. You know, uh-huh. like it's, she's all over the place. And, I mean, I think that it really is, it's an indictment of the media class for not asking these questions earlier. People like Bill Gates and Bill Clinton continue to do interviews. They're alive and well and wandering around and frankly are rarely asked about their relationship with Jeffrey Epstein to, to this day, rarely. Um, and I, I really do think eventually if the truth comes out about the connectedness of all of these people, it's going to be of a magnitude that even we are underestimating mm. because the silence speaks volumes.
0: Absolutely. Deutsche Bank will pay $75 million to sexual abuse victims of Jeffrey Epstein to settle last year's lawsuit. That's according to the New York Times. Dylan Riddle, a spokesman for the bank, said in a statement that the German bank, quote, has made considerable progress in remedying a number of past issues.
1: I'm, I'm excited about—and I shouldn't say excited about. I think that the The lawsuit, the Virgin
0: Islands lawsuit, yeah.
1: —might yield significant benefits.
0: Very much You're so. You're getting
1: important people having to— submit to de- depositions. Uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, CEO of JP Morgan, is submitting to one at the end of this month. And you're gonna have a lot more clarity, forced transparency, than there have been about a lot of these issues going forward. I mean, the, the fact that we're following the money now, and it's not just hoping that the little black book reveals X, Y, and Z, or that we can get something out of the testimony at trial, trials that never happened because of Jeffrey Epstein's untimely death. You know, this seems more concrete mm. um, and could yield potential benefits. So I'm looking forward to following that story as it continues.
0: We will keep following and we'll have more rising right after this. <music> Representative Marjorie Taylor Green introduced articles of impeachment against President Joe Biden today. Here she is speaking on the Hill earlier.
5: Biden. Joe Biden has deliberately compromised our national security by refusing to enforce immigration laws and secure our border, allowed approximately 6 million illegals from over 170 countries to invade our country, deprive Border Patrol of the necessary resources and policies sufficient to protect our country. And his administration has willfully refused to maintain operational control as required by the law. He has allowed fentanyl, the number one killer of Americans between the age of 18 and 45, to overwhelmingly flood into our country and kill around 300 Americans every single day. These aren't just Americans, these are people's family members. These are their sons, their daughters, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their fathers, their cousins, aunts and uncles. These are American families.
0: The fentanyl crisis is obviously a huge deal. So many very tragic deaths because of the um, high level of just like instant death when you take a substance that has fentanyl in it. The high degree of, of replacement of heroin is substantially just fentanyl. Um, unfortunately, I don't hear a lot of good policies for addressing this. I tend to, the policies I tend to hear are, let's do the drug war harder, let's go to war with mm-hmm. the cartels, and how is that different? How th- that doesn't actually squeeze their bottom line. That makes what they're doing more lucrative. The more uh, more prohibited it is, that's the phenomenon we've seen with, you know, prohibition of every substance going back to alcohol in the you know 1920s. And then on the broader question of impeaching Joe Biden, you know, over immigration policies—I I mean, she's right that the border is a mess. We've seen the images of all these people coming here under unsafe conditions, that often—unsafe for them because of the trafficking component and the journey and all that. Yeah. Um, Joe Biden has certainly not done a good job of handling that issue, nor have, like, any of his successors. so I don't really think it's a—or his predecessor. So, I don't really think it's a impeachment offense. It's a policy that is not yeah. going well, in part because Congress has not taken the Sure. Done its job to fix the immigration problem by creating some way for people, a much easier pathway for people to immigrate here legally, and then coupling it with actual border enforcement so we don't have this problem.
1: Yeah, look, for one, it's interesting timing given that mo- a lot of this debate was focused around Title 42. Title 42 lapses. Remember, it's a COVID policy. Right. Everybody wants to COVID to be over. Keep the to disease over, out of the country. Keep the disease out. If COVID <laughs> is over, Biden agrees. Yeah, Republicans no agree. Everyone agrees. COVID is over. It doesn't make any sense, like logistically. But there was all this fear-mongering around it. Republicans were saying that once Title 42 goes away, we're going to have a flood of people over the border. In fact, we saw a decline in the in the week following um, uh, Title 42 no longer being in effect. So the timing of this is a little odd. Of course, there is an issue with the border. It's confusing, though, just outside of criticizing what Democrats are doing, which I think there's opportunity for criticism there legitimately. So Republicans don't really tend to propose much in the alternative as a, uh, outside of, you know, building a wall, which has no relationship to actually stopping b- border crossings. Or doing things like opposing the distribution of needle so exchanges. Trump didn't even build
0: it. Was the signature thing that he promised? Right. Them. He, they did, he built didn't build like it. Like a little part of it, or Although something. Although he
1: said that he did build it at the town hall. Um, <laughs> he built. They
0: built like a little. They a put bit up of a it. Panel or something. Sure. You know? Yeah.
1: Um, but Republicans are also opposing things like needle exchange programs and putting Narcan and making Narcan and naloxone. The uh, naloxone is the fentanyl mm. life-saving. Republicans are opposing that. They constantly are pushing mm. back against those do that. the fast distribution of those public health programs yeah. that aren't able to um, disseminate those kinds of life-saving treatments um, and legalizing other kinds of drugs that aren't harmful like marijuana.
0: There's the, like, B- Biden also opposes that by the should, way. should uh, should carry narcan on them at this point if you live in the cities.
1: <laughs> maybe maybe that is true. So it is it is frustrating also of course legislatively this isn't going anywhere so it does feel somewhat performative but you know if she wants to make her strong feelings about Biden's border management known, I think that's fair. One other part of this is that there have been pushes by some conservatives to defund DHS. Part of why Biden has kind of limited um, focus on certain kinds of immigrants in the past is because of a funding issue. There's a kind of a triage situation given the crisis at the border, given the large number of people who are trying to cross the border. And so they decided to focus on different right. certain kind of migrants. Well, if you want them not to have to triage, then you're going to have to potentially fund both the asylum uh, legal processes at the border and um, right. DHS agents more broadly and some conservatives are trying to do the opposite of that so it's unclear what the thinking is well and
0: the thinking here is on this whole thing is very backward because the cart- the cartels are powerful and it, it, they're money-making organizations they traffic in illegal goods drugs and and that humans <laughs> humans being able to cr- cross the border that's a legal issue they the human the, the illegal immigrants are a commodity yeah. <laughs> it, it's sad to describe people that way but it's true and they make money off that so again making these things making these things even more criminalized does not is not targeting the cartels it's making them wealthier right so we have to like think through that like you're you're playing right into their hands uh because people are still going to try to get into this country we can't have that not be the case? It's a great country. People want to come, live here, work here, etc. And we've created a system, or we've deliberately, through our neglect, through our policy neglect, mm-hmm. have a system where people are coming to this country in a way that is very dangerous for them, and that em- empowers financially these cartels yeah. that everyone is so mad about, r- realistically, correctly mad about for their role in spreading fentanyl. Yeah. But these are. But th- then you need you need to create a safe legal Mm -hmm. pathway people can come work here pay taxes it, it, we have a labor shortage in, in many sectors. We, don't, we can't build houses because mm-hmm. there aren't enough work, work crews to do it. We could solve a lot of problems and actually undercut the cartels with a sane immigration policy. Please take that up, Congress. I'm yeah, begging you. Please. And mo- most
1: people agree with you, but that seems not to be the congressional priority right now. Mm. On another note, Green also spoke out—this uh, was an interesting story—after Representative Jamal Bowman called her a white
5: supremacist calling a person of color the n-word, which should never happen, calling me a white supremacist is equal to that, and that is wrong. Jamal Bowman was down there cursing at me, telling me to get the F out of there, and he was leading the mob right outside the vehicle I was sitting in. We have this all on video. And then on the Capitol steps yesterday, he was the one that approached me, even CNN reported that, yelling, shouting, raising his voice. He has aggressive, uh, his physical mannerisms are aggressive. And he just recently uh, shoved Thomas Massey um, at just outside the House chamber. I think there's a lot of concern about Jamal Bowman. So, and, and I am concerned about it. I feel threatened by him. Well,
0: he shouldn't have called her a white supremacist if that's what occurred. Um, I don't think that's a fair description for what well, Taylor Well, he has a
1: right to call her a white supremacist, and people right can object to it, object yeah. to it and, and think less of him Including or not her. him. her, she's objecting to it. Yeah. But there's no, you know, she he can describe her politics and her views the way that he thinks is appropriate, and she can advocate, um, she can say that that is akin to using the N-word. I think that if she thinks those kinds of words are similar in weight and meaning, that she should go ahead and use it.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: She should go ahead and say the N-word.
0: Well, but she's, that, she's saying, she was not, un, well... I don't think they're equivalent. to I mean, the the, the raw ugliness of the N word makes it like very unsayable. Um, but she is, she, she wasn't saying like it should be easier to say the N word, right? She wasn't saying that saying it is a good well, thing. She's if, saying if, if I felt malign akin to
1: if describing someone as a white supremacist is as serious as ugly and as unsayable as calling someone the N word. She was saying then you then shouldn't, shouldn't be, do that. Right. Well, then we shouldn't be saying, saying white supremacists—she's saying white supremacists out loud. I think, obviously, the ability for many people to describe things as white supremacists, including um, the uh, Allen, Texas shooter, who was a self-identified white supremacist who was covered with Nazi tattoos. We live in a world where people like Elon Musk and many conservatives have, for some reason, been working overtime to make the case that this man, who they're not connected to and have no need to defend, ostensibly, is not, in fact, a white supremacist. I do think that there is a way that the word white supremacist has been overused in today's discourse. Yes, I've been Not, called
0: a white supremacist.
1: And I've been called a black white supremacist mm-hmm. by Tiffany Cross, an MSNBC reporter. So I I understand that the, the word has been overused. And perhaps Jamal Bowman overused it. I wish that we saw the context. If she has video, I hope that she releases it or becomes broadly available uh, because I think that we should see that. At the same time, um, I think that it is obviously an apples to comparison, white supremacy is describing a phenomenon of people who believe that because of their race they are better than other people. Oftentimes there is a genocidal underpinning right. to that. They want to exterminate other people. They want this to be a white country. They see this as a, uh, it's, it's white nationalism. It is related to the Great Replacement Theory and the feeling that America is becoming a worse country because it is becoming a less white country. We have had people, in, including very prominent news reporters, talk about how immigrants are dirty. And poorer and ruining this country, and that is something that is, in fact, a, a white supremacist ideology. We it, should have it.
0: That? We should call. We should call white supremacists white supremacists. We shouldn't right. call anyone the N-word. We should call white supremacists white supremacists.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, and that's why the comparison. The is a white supremacist.
0: But that's why the comparison
1: is an apt because one thing right. is describing an ideology, and one thing is just a derogatory term for black people. So I just don't understand why one, in the context of pushing back against the accusation of white supremacy would bring up the N-word at all. I would simply say, I'm not a white supremacy. I'm not a white supremacist. I believe in the equality of the races. I think America is great because yeah. it's a part I agree of with the country. With, I, Those are all things that a person could say to push back against accusations I of white supremacy. I
0: agree with you. Calling someone who is not a white supremacist a white supremacist is derogatory toward them, and you shouldn't do it. But it's his right to do it. I agree with that. Yeah. And they're not equivalent. I yeah, also great. So
1: yeah, it's just a really weird. It's just a really weird place that we're in. I, I wish that Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, and she is. She's she is um, trying to impeach the head of the FBI as well. I think that is a much more constructive move. Uh, I wish that there were um, le- was legislation that was drawn up to defund the FBI. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, as she advocated for last year, I think that there, there are opportunities for defunding the police broadly across the ideological spectrum and people were willing to work together. We have Americans in the middle of an economic crisis that's very significant. We're on the brink of the debt ceiling crisis, where Republicans are trying to argue that we should uh, make it harder for people to get food benefits while not touching any of our revenue issues with the, with the rich being well, And if you're a
0: member of Congress, let's not you know sit on our thumbs and just be really angry about the influence of the cartels and what they're doing to this country yeah. without proposing a policy to fix immigration. And
1: I'll say this about Jamal Bowman as well. I don't think that he's threatening or um, uh, at risk of actually attacking anybody. I didn't see him
0: shove masks in that exchange. It was a very heated exchange. Yeah. Um, but
1: But I do think that he is performative and bombastic, and it's not helpful to his credibility. It doesn't advance the policies that he reports to support. He has a lot of energy around things like calling people white supremacists and not a lot of energy around advocating for policies like Medicare for All, which he claimed to support as he was getting progressive support to get into office. Um, There are real crises afoot, including real white supremacist crises afoot, that you can more—make more credible arguments about and try to do something about from a legislative perspective. And I think that he has been very purposefully engaging in a kind of political pageantry That can be productive in some instances, but not if it's about kind of getting YouTube Mm. clips circulating about yourself, and that's not tied to any legislative agenda.
0: Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Senator Marco Rubio has released a new report detailing a, quote, mountain of circumstantial evidence that COVID-19 originated from a lab in Wuhan, China. Rubio's 300-plus page report alleges a serious biocontainment incident occurred at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in 2019 and that a, quote, careful reading of reports from the lab spanning more than a three-year period yielded a picture of a struggling institution underfunded, underregulated, and understaffed. Now, according to the Daily Mail, Rubio's report states that on September 19, 2019, the Wuhan lab shut down its online virus database overnight. Six days later, the lab advised the Wuhan airport on a drill in case of the outbreak of a novel coronavirus. Then just days after that, a Wuhan resident known as Su died from what a Chinese biostatistician believes is COVID-19. This death, thought to be China's first from covid occurred in September, tw- two, September 2019, two months earlier than previously thought.
1: Mm, it's interesting. The evidence that lab leak theory is more than a theory keeps coming in. I wonder if there'll be any accountability for anybody involved.
0: This obviously overlaps substantially, is similar to reporting that uh, Vanity Fair ProPublica has done mm. on the, those diplomatic cables from Wuhan to the Chinese government that have been—that uh, were kind of decoded by some Chinese-language experts for ProPublica that said they really look like they're hinting at something going having gone wrong. Uh, many of the problems Marco Rubio just outlined there—the mm-hmm. understaffing, the mm-hmm. unsafe, the, the lack of, like, proper— Uh, the correct procedures for washing down, Mm -hmm. for actually for having the the facility built with materials that are correct Mm -hmm. for cleaning everything, Um, warning the government that they were not... So the government had pressured them to discover, to find, to innovate, and then them warning the government that "Eh, some things might have not been so great. And, of course, we've heard, you know, firsthand accounts from people who... The, the laboratory would send into bat caves to collect the samples, not wearing gloves, mask. You know, the bats biting them as they're as they're picking them off the cave walls sound highly highly unsanitary, highly dangerous. Mm. So again, it's all circumstantial, but uh, but also the the wet market theory has lost. It had picked up steam recently because you know, the people read that study and the New York Times and others like defiantly declared, oh, we, we found the raccoon dog. Look how much raccoon dog genetic material is is shared with this swab that has COVID as well. Now we know that that was really a misread, that substantially the swabs do not overlap at all with that uh, with that animal. And that, that was really a red herring on the part yeah. of people who did not read the study closely enough.
1: It is really interesting how just the words wet market have fallen out of the public discourse. We do get these little blips and bloops yeah. like the raccoon dog story that do seem to offer some alternative narrative to the lab leak theory. But it does really seem, since some of these um, government agencies a few months ago acknowledged that it was more likely than not that uh, lab leak theory was the real origin of COVID-19, that doesn't really even seem to be that controversial uh, anymore. Um, And so then I I do wonder, you know, what is the next step? I mean, these corroborating bits of um, evidence certainly are useful, like this report that Marco Rubio has um, surfaced now. And, you know, nobody can doubt the contributions of that to our better understanding of what what happened. But I am also really interested, especially with so many Republicans, I think, rightly trying to raise attention, um, you know, bring attention to, Um, the corruption and weaponization of various other arms of government, whether or not we're going to see some real substantive policy reforms and perhaps even some legal accountability for the people who are involved in allowing this to spread, and more, more importantly, Who are involved in the cover-up?
0: Well, reportedly, the National Institutes of Health have taken the bare minimum first step, finally, of delisting the Wuhan lab, uh, in addition to a bunch of Russian labs, which I assume is some (laughs) Ukraine kind of thing. Uh, But there—yeah, we have it on screen here, Um, Rand Paul saying it's about damn time. Yes, it is. Uh, This is all according to the White Coat Waste Project, uh, which has been a critic of funding on animals that Mm -hmm. uh, Fauci funded. We've had some uh, guests from them on the show uh, a lot—much earlier. Uh, Ryan Grimm and I had them on before. Uh, So they're saying we're no longer—the NHS is no longer going to do business with the Wuhan lab, which is like— Duh! Please, please yeah. no! Please stop green. <laughs> please stop green lighting There's these just, things. It's
1: just not that serious. I don't want to. <laughs> I
0: don't want to see what we're manipulating yeah. viruses in unsafe lab conditions in China anymore.
1: No more, please. Yeah, just from no, an optics no. perspective, whatever they can do with the Wuhan lab, they can certainly set up somewhere else in the world with yes. the appropriate. Yeah. Uh, some Precautions. Else, yeah. How about how
0: about how about the moon? How about uh, how about <laughs> Mars? How about the space station? <laughs> Okay, and then when then when people start turning into the thing, it just stays on the space station.
1: <laughs> you know, I, this this there's another really interesting point that was raised actually recently by RFK Jr. He was talking about it in the context of environmental law, and how um, you know he has some of his concerns about nuclear power involve the fact that there's no insurance company that is willing to extend a policy to them. There's like this basic understanding that the product is so potentially dangerous and that the dangers would create such a significantly high cost burden if they did have to pay, then no company in their right mind would willingly insure it. And that speaks to something um, that happens in a lot of pollution cases, uh, a a lot of um, uh, climate change cases, is that we're dealing with mass externalities. where. There's no liability for um, nuclear power. If there were liability, they wouldn't be able to set up business in the first place because they can't get insurance. They have limited liability in those kind of contexts, and that enables companies to discharge their waste into the, the, the public water supply. People get mercury poisoning. There's millions and millions and billions of dollars of health effects that are downstream that never get accounted for. And that's why we have so many of the problems that we do, because the markets are inefficient. We can pray for an efficient market, but the reality that they are inefficient because of government subsidies. because of externalized costs, pollution, and the like. And in this context, it really does seem like the limited liability for these pharmaceutical companies, whether it's the development of the vaccine or the insulation that places like these government institutions have against any real legal recourse, are part of why we ended up with a catastrophe as big as the one we have, and also why there seems to be a relative disinterest in actually getting to the bottom of what happened here. Yeah,
0: like you said, artificially limiting liability is not not a free market move in in a— free market, people are supposed to you know, pay the cost, the consequences, if they cause harm. Are you supposed to be able to take them to court and sue them and, you know, work it out in civil procedure, that kind of thing, the common law? But it, it, it is—when government artificially limits liability, that is actually an intervention. Yes. Uh, so, that's not something I'm going to defend.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And as, as you point out, very well could have created the conditions where there is unsafe. I mean, this happens in oil drilling. Sometimes they hold uh, Deepwater Horizon. Absolutely. Why are they drilling there? Well, they have a. There's a liability cap. It's so dangerous. No, like you said, no one would insure it because it's so dangerous. But they actually had their liability artificially capped. Yeah. Um, which destroy. You know, you might not support them drilling elsewhere, but they they could. You know, drilling in the the, the shallow waters off the coast of California. Still has, you might argue, has environmental harms that you don't want to happen, but is safer than, you know, drilling in the middle of the Gulf mm. of Mexico, a billion feet below. I'm using really precise numbers <laughs> today, uh, below, uh, below the surface. Yeah. That is inherently dangerous. Um, and, and they should and they should bear that cost. They'd have to pay, but they had their liability
1: artificially capped. So I'm like, no, well, yeah, drill there. Yeah. East Palestine is another example of one sure. of these situations where, if railroad companies aren't forced to internalize the cost, in term including the long term health costs of people who are going to be suffering from the fallout of those kind of disasters, they'll never implement safety procedures that could prevent them happening in the first place. So, yeah. More rising right after this. Pete Buttigieg loves God, beer, and his electric Mustang. Sure, the U.S. Secretary of Transportation has thoughts on building bridges, but infrastructure occupies just a sliver of his voluminous mind. That's apparently Wired Magazine's biggest takeaway from interviewing the Secretary of Transportation in a piece published today and going viral. Reporter Virginia Heffernan
0: did not ask Buttigieg about East Palestine, Ohio, not once, doesn't appear in the document, or what he's doing to prevent train derailments, protections for airline customers, really anything specifically having to do with his actual job. Instead, the two of them discussed Tucker Carlson, impossible meat, conspiracy theories on the right, Buttigieg's belief in God, and, of course, January 6th. Can't forget that. Journalist Zaid Jelani reacted to the piece, quote, why did someone interview the Secretary of Transportation? and ask almost no questions about transportation. That's why uh, this interview is going viral. I have to say it is one of the most, it's a fawning, uh, it's hagiography. Hey, it, it, it is so favorable to Buttigieg. It begins, the curious mind of Pete Buttigieg holds much of its functionality in reserve. Uh, <laughs> she describes him as a, a clockwork man, able to carry on conversation while, while solving a Rubik's Cube in one part of his mind and playing the piano and then doing masculine things like like drinking beer, which I don't know if that's a masculine thing anymore
1: <laughs> given all the, the woke Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney sure. takeover. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I thought kid. we had I these kid. days behind us. This is how Buttigieg reared onto the scene with all of the, these uh, articles that were written about how he was like the smartest boy that ever lived. Uh, this piece says, um, you know, I slowly become aware that his cabinet job requires only a modest portion of his cognitive powers. Other mental facilities, no kidding, are apportioned to the Iliad, Puritan, Puritan historiography, Nosgard Spring, though not in the original Norwegian, slacker. You know, like it's, it's like yeah. the idea that this guy spoke a handful of languages, which came into dispute later on how actually fluent he was with them, and that he, I don't know, took a classics right. course in college, were supposed to be a substitute for a real interview about his role in government. I think the only question specifically about uh, running the Department of Transportation uh, comes in this form. Quote, running DOT seems to suit you. Are there more ways the challenges of transportation speak to your spiritual side? <laughs> Just wild. Should it so be clear? Wild. There was not just the accident in East Palestine. There have been a number of train derailments that have now all been memory hold because they've been more, too many to count. Remember, he made that comment um, when asked to respond to the East Palestine disaster, saying, "Well, these things happen like a thousand times a year." which he was torn apart for, rightly so. There was the huge airline crisis over the holidays where, what, like millions of Americans were stranded and not able to get to their holiday travel, the most kind of massive grounding of planes in recent history, if not ever. No questions about that. You know, it, it's a real dereliction of responsibility from a journalistic perspective, but you also have to ask why it is that someone would be Elevating Buttigieg in this sort of a way, I,
0: I think transparently. I mean, this reads like uh, this man is so perfect. He's so smart. He can speak eloquently on every subject. You know, he knows so everything. Have Why yep. shouldn't he be president? That's,
1: I mean, that's the that's, that's the, that's the tacit, subtext tacit, yep. here. Yes. Yeah, and and it's it's this tying. is an advert.
0: It's an advertisement for Pete Judge.
1: Mm-hmm. And articles like this are the only reason he is a thing to begin with. He was the mayor of a town. The fourth largest town in the state of Indiana, <laughs> right? Mean, Indiana. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, South Bend. Um, this population is just over a hundred thousand people. There are buildings in China with more people in them than <laughs> that. I mean, like, it, seriously. Uh, and, and they're suddenly, still in there. They're
0: not allowed to leave their homes. Stop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the national conversation, he, in magazine cover after magazine cover, I remember this in, in 2019, going to a doctor's office, mm-hmm. like, or, or I guess a little bit before that, 2017, 2018, going to a friend's house, seeing the Washingtonian, you know, every magazine that you looked at would have Pete Buttigieg's face on the cover. And it really did create this weird social phenomenon where we were supposed to invest in his abilities in a way that was way outsized his actual performance. Mm -hmm. And now that he has a real job and a real administration, not to say that being the mayor of South End is a real job, but now that he has a more high profile job with more responsibilities, he's quite literally failing at that job and still getting plaudits from the press. I
0: smell a nefarious plot by Big Magazine to have (laughs) Pete Buttigieg and Stacey Abrams be the Democratic (laughs) ticket. Stacey Abrams— All they want to do is sell covers, It might and be that's more, what it's going to be.
1: It might be Stacey Plaskett these days, because I don't even see anybody really talking about Stacey Abrams no, that falling much anymore. The,
0: she's fallen off the radar.
1: After all of the voting rights lawsuits ended, yeah. you know, not in her interest, you know, they they failed. Um, uh, the, uh, the Sorry, the, the voter uh, suppression lawsuits, rather. And after the expose uh, about her having funneled so much money to her friend's— law firm in order to litigate those unsuccessful lawsuits. It seems like even the Democratic Party has put some distance between themselves and her. Or maybe she's just stepped away from the public eye for a while to get her own life in order. What is clear is that the same isn't true of uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's very much rearing to go. Former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner commented on Wired's post on Buttigieg uh, and, and said the following. With a remarkable blend of intellect and empathy, P. Buttigieg brings a fresh perspective to the forefront of the public discourse. That's from the article, of course. Turner responded, was there empathy for, the, uh, East, for East Palestine residents? I think that's a very fair question, one that the author of this piece declined to ask.
0: Yeah, it, this it's getting just torn apart on Twitter. I'm scrolling through <laughs> the— uh... Um, uh, Sagar Anjeti, a former host of this show, Breaking Point, says he's like a Big Bang Theory character, a dumb person's idea of what a smart person should look like.
1: That's actually
0: smart and competent people are laughing at him.
1: I think that's right. And the article, by the way, it touches on these aspects of his...
0: <laughs> Charles C.W. Cook of National Review. Inspired by Virginia Heffernan's journalism, I sat down with Pete Buttigieg to discuss barges, Latin poetry, my enduring love for his cathedral of a mind. <laughs> a love that makes <laughs> breath poor and speech unable.
1: <laughs> it's it's pathetic. It's, oh, he wrote a whole article. I, I had a... Um... And an airline uh, industry am, expert on my ahead. show a few months ago. And one of the things that he pointed out was that there's so much that Buttigieg has experienced. Ex- exclusive ability to control in his position at DOT, like he, that is exclusively exclusively in his province. So it's not one of those things where, oh, he can't do X, Y, and Z because Congress isn't with him or he has to pass this bill and Republicans are going to block it. Pete Buttigieg could literally be live making consumers' lives better in some really meaningful industries. In an election season, it is declining to do so and getting patted on the back for it.
0: Uh, I'm sorry. I'm just reading this, Charles C.W. Cook. This is a parody. Uh, this is a National Review, a conservative writer. Uh, doing a parody of this piece, it is so funny. The man's mind is a cathedral, and I, a mere congregant, have been invited into its inner sanctum. In between the seductive sips of, I can't even pronounce this, I assume this is a fancy Chardonnay, atop which he builds his heady pedagogical flights, Pete Buttigieg leans back into his pulchritudinous chair and takes me through the history of the Asian subcontinent. I am sitting in the great man's office in the heart of Washington, D.C., stealing a few moments of his valuable time. I was early and he was late, but that was to be expected. Some people require their own rules.
1: Yeah, this feels very this Obama very, era very where good. liberals or liberals felt like if they just
0: It goes on and on again, read it.
1: Got got enough people with Harvard degrees who are over six foot tall with enough identity how tall diversity. Is, is he tall? Uh, I don't think he's especially tall. He's like What's his sign? 5'10. What are we, we're all interested <laughs> in that like we, everybody that. involved
0: in this show except for <laughs> me always wants to know everybody's sign <laughs> and there, there's a lot of,
1: oh, you're a Leo, that means X, Y, Z. You know what it means, we're especially as a Leo. I do know what it means man. having listened
0: to you and our producers what, talk about what it. One other so thing much?
1: for the for the leftists who have been cultivating a distrust of uh, <laughs> being Buddha judge for, oh, we're getting, we're getting word that he's a Capricorn. I don't know what that means. They're diligent, they're hardworking. Mm. Um, they're a little, well, I don't want to, I, I had no one love a lot of Capricorns, but they can be a little bit um, rigid, uh, flat. Um, They can be kind of mean, Mm. actually. If they're on your side, the meanness feels like support. But when they're not on your side, they're some of the meanest people that I know. I will say that. Interesting. You were
0: saying about the left.
1: Yeah. The left has been cultivating a frustration with Pete Buttigieg for a really long time, precisely because he does this cosplaying as being an actual leftist. This article sings sings praises of his father being a a notable Marxist uh, professor, as though any of that made it over to people to judge. It talks about how people to judge used to love Bernie Sanders and all of this feels like a shorthand from, for come on, left, you should really like this guy, but the left isn't stupid. One of the things that it's laundering is, it it asked him specifically about neoliberalism as a principle, which is, again, evidence of how weirdly kind of out of touch the focus of this. Nobody speaks in those kind of terms, unless you're an academic or very deep on the online left having conversations about how uh, Hillary Clinton is a neoliberal shill, right? But she asks him a question about neoliberalism, and she defines it as the happy idea that consumer markets and liberal democracy will always expand and will always expand together. Now, I'm very much on the online left, and I travel in academic circles. I have never heard it defined in that way, as a patently Good thing that everything is going to get better, and in the markets, in social democracy, and everything that's going to be—you know—why wouldn't anybody be uh, against? uh, Why would anybody be against neoliberalism? Neoliberalism usually defines a system of austerity, price controls, deregulation—a lot of the things that people on the populist left and right have been criticizing for years—that has devastated midwestern towns like the ones Pete Buttigieg is from, and so this papering over of it uh, as a as a philosophy, as a as a uh, an economic. Um, approach and not interrogating why it is that Pete Buttigieg actually supports specifically explicitly neoliberalism, it's just more evidence of the whitewashing that this, this particular article does. It's a mess.
0: We encourage you to read it, very enjoyable. Tomorrow on Rising, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere there are podcasts. And we hope you have had a good week. We've had a good week. We've had a good week. I can finally get back to- Legends of Zelda. Legend of Zelda. I'll have my review (laughs) next week, I promise. I've even threatened to bring the game into the studio.
1: Hey, I'll play. I like a video game. I have an older brother. I know how to get. I know how to get down. We
0: know you're clamoring for it. Uh, we'll talk to you soon.
4: <laughs> Take care. Bye bye.